Hi, my name is Peter Knight and I want to thank you for listening into this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rob Neal, a sports biomechanist who works solely with golf. He's based at Doral Country Club in Florida and works with young players right through to professional tour players. I was intrigued to find out from Rob what he thought were the key components of a good golf swing and which players have the best swings. I have to admit, this wasn't the first interview I did with Rob. The podcasting gremlins got me last time. After the interview, I realised it hadn't recorded. Have you ever done anything like that? The feeling is terrible. Anyway, I had to go back to Rob with my tail between my legs and ask if he'd mind doing the podcast again. And like a true professional, that's Rob, not me, he agreed. If you enjoy the chat with Rob, then go to iTunes and look up Iron Golf Mind. Subscribe to the podcast series. That way you won't miss any. You can also download and catch up on past interviews. If you find you're getting some great information through these podcasts, and I'm sure you will, then please tell your friends. Enjoy my chat with Rob, which I began by asking him what biomechanics is. So, Peter, biomechanics is really generally the study of biological materials using the methods of mechanics or engineering. So things like static analysis, dynamic analysis. But I suppose specifically for golf, it's all about what the body does and how it moves, so description of movement and understanding why certain movements are better on the body or better for speed or better for control than other types of movements. Okay. And this is a this is a quite a scientific field. It has sort of come into relative prominence among particularly national groups and, and, and others. I'm really interested to, to hear your story. How did you get involved with biomechanics? It, it's a long story, Peter, but I'll, I'll try to make it brief so the listeners don't get bored. Okay. So when, I, when I left high school, and as a high school kid, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I'd played a lot of sport. I was good at school, particularly in maths and physics and, and chemistry. And all of the aptitude tests said that I should do engineering at university. And I wasn't at 18 ready to go and embark on engineering because I was still quite interested in sport. So I went and did a physical education degree and uh, taught high school and also primary school for a little while when I was in Australia. And then I decided that, no, school teaching wasn't the thing for me. I was going to go back and do graduate uh, work, so go back and do my master's and then on to do my PhD. And it was then that the pieces came together because it was the perfect scenario I could use my maths, physics skills, engineering uh, type mind, but I could apply this to the human body. And that's what biomechanics for me was. It was about understanding how the body could work. And I then uh, fortunately decided that in 1982, I think it was, that I wanted to be the first to do a 3D biomechanical study on golf. And so... That was my uh, intro into uh, golf swing analysis, so way back in, in the early 80s when I was doing my master's degree. And the interest for that was because you were a golfer? No, that's when I started playing golf. Ah, um, okay. I'd, um, 
I mean, as a teenager, I'd kind of dabbled a bit, but nothing very serious. And I'd, pl I'd played high-level basketball prior to that, national level in Australia. And uh, I decided I'd had a pretty good run at 25, not too many injuries, and I was only going to get worse as I got older. And the, um, the men that I was playing against just kept on getting bigger and bigger, and I thought... Yeah, let's try and find a lifetime sport that I could play and be and be happy doing. So I tried tennis and golf in, in that year, 1982, and um, just turns out that I like golf more than tennis, and so I decided to do some biomechanical studies on it, and and uh, then it was actually a, a a medium through which I would study what. I called in those days segment interactions in sport, which was a theme of my research when I was a university professor or academic. And um, so I, I gained insight into golf swing mechanics, um, primarily through my interests in, in how we coordinate movement. Okay, so Robert sounds that you, you clearly don't dabble, you just you just dive right in in the deep end first up <laughs> yes well I, it's it's the nature of the beast i think so uh i always like to know things well and dig deep into them and so it was a matter of well what engineering and mathematical skills do i need to do uh to make sure that I can be a really good biomechanist. And so there were lots of engineering maths courses that I took along the way that really held me in good stead then when I was doing my PhD later on and then working as a, as a university academic. And I think that that formal grounding is really important because you understand the principles so well then, and then when you have to teach them, that's when you really know if you understand them or not. So when you have to explain angular momentum or linear momentum or conservation of um, momentum or things like that, then you, you, if you have to teach those concepts and principles to people, you have to know them inside out. And so it was a, a tremendous grounding for me. And so um, it, it's really helped me later on in, the, in what I call my second career when I went into uh, the golf biodynamics, uh, which was providing 3D solutions to golfers and golf coaches. It's a, it reminds me of a story of, a guy named Homer Kelly who wrote a, a, quite a, a well-known book among the coaching community called The Golfing Machine, and he published that in 1968 or 69, around the same time that In Search for the Perfect Swing was published by um, Alistair Cochran and Stobbs in the UK. And what Homer Kelly had done is he was an engineer, electronic engineer actually, and he tried to find what it was that made the golf swing work. Now, the difference between uh, what he did and then what um, Cochrane and Stobbs did was that there was science, more science involved in what Cochrane and Stobbs did, but then what you've done with the biomechanics stuff has taken it to a whole new level. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. I mean, Homer Kelly was years before his time, I think, in terms of trying to find a structure for um, golf coaches to make their golf instruction better. And 
I, I, I've tried to read the book a few times. I, I've struggled with it, I can tell you honestly. <laughs> Just, I think primarily because the language is so different to the language I would use as, a, as an engineer or a physicist. Yeah. And, and, um, but I always say to people, there must be good stuff in there because people who have used it and then I get to listen to what they say, I think, yeah, well, that's that's good. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense to me. I mean, there were some problems with the model that he actually used, but uh, that, that wasn't really um, disclosed until many, many years later when um, uh, some people did some more sophisticated modeling in 3D and, and that sort of thing. But still, even to this day, the, the double pendulum model that Kelly used and the was um, the predominant form that, that many researchers through the 60s and 70s used is still very viable. Um, it has its limitations, but it's still very, very good. And uh, so I, I like the fact that you know, the, the work that we do here is considered to be right on the leading edge, trying to understand not just what the human body does, um, but why it does things this way and what are the differences between expert performers and, and uh, I won't say novice performers but more the average performer and then really translate that information into a form that people can understand because that to me is the essence of good biomechanics for the community. And, and Rob, that, que that statement you just made about the difference between the the very good performers and the average performers is the question that every single golfer wants to ask about every aspect of the game. So how about we go look at that from your perspective, from a biomechanical perspective. What are the things that seem to differentiate the really good players from the rest? So now... Just basically, they go, well, a, a highly skilled player is actually more consistent. So they're able to re reproduce the pattern of movement uh, with less variation than a, a handicapped golfer. But there are other f characteristics that I see that really quite distinguish the, the two groups. One is that every good player that I've worked with or measured is able to, I'll call it, transfer weight properly during the golf swing, which means to me that you load up on your trail side on the backswing and you transfer weight quickly and early to your lead side on the downswing, and then you begin rotating. So it's that combination of sequence of movement coupled with the weight transfer. And then all good players figure out what they need to do with their body and their arms and club in relation to it, to one another. Whereas typically poor golfers want to do more with their upper body without allowing their lower body to do the, the things that are necessary to set the upper body up properly. So a, a common example that, that uh, you might see is um, if you try to throw a ball and you just used your upper body and your arms, and then you stepped with your weight forward, it wouldn't be as effective as stepping first 
winding up as you're stepping forward, so putting all of the muscles on stretch and then letting the body rotate and the arms rotate to throw the ball powerfully. Uh, that sequence of movement is one of the hallmarks of very good athletes in all sports, but clearly that's one of the differentiators between uh, average players and highly skilled players in golf. Yeah, and of course... I, I would I, say one, of, yes, one of the other things that they'll do, that, that very good players do, is that they're able to control the leaning forward of the shaft or really the dynamic loft of the golf club mm -hmm. um, and the angle of attack, so whether the club head's moving down or neutral or going up, much better than um, poorer players. So that gives them the ability to flight shots and control their ball much better than an average player is able to. And this all comes back to sequencing of body and arms and club. Yes, and, and what golf coaches cottoned on to a long time ago, and, and I didn't understand at first when they say, oh, you've got, to have a, you've got to be connected between your left arm and your, and your body. And I go, well, what does that really mean? And uh, so I think I've been able to describe it in numbers now, but it really means um, that that lead arm is not connected. It's not glued to your, to your ribs or to your upper torso. It means that it has to be moving correctly relative to that body segment so that you, you can control the arms and the club because when the club and the arms get moving fast, you don't have enough strength to just let them fly away from your body and still maintain control. What you have to do is keep this connection so the pulling of the muscles in the upper back and behind the shoulders and that sort of thing um, to allow you to better control the movements of those levers that are attached to the golf club. Okay, that's taken us a, a fair way down some interesting technical stuff, which is... Um, for most of the listeners, we might have lost a few listeners through that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, Rob, if, if we could say that the vast majority of players actually get that sequence wrong. You describe throwing, and if you throw with your upper body first and then move your lower body, which is what a lot of golfers do, what's the yeah. result? Well, I mean, you lose power. You typically then swipe across the, um, the ball so that... You're, you're, the path that the club's moving is not in the same direction as your intended target. So you get a glancing blow all the time on the ball, and it could be a slice or it could be a hook. It doesn't really matter. The, the physics are the same, really. And, but they're ineffective in, in flighting the ball as ef efficiently as possible towards your target. So that, that, those are the two biggest things. So the fact that your club is now moving in a direction other than where it needs to be to, to propel the ball towards the target, and that because of the poor sequencing, you lose um, speed, then you've, you've lost two of the primary determinants of success in golf. Okay. So of the players that you've seen, um, whether you've worked with them or not, who do you feel has a, a golf swing that, that really reproduces the motions that you like to see the best? Um, there, there are a lot of players whom I've 
worked with and seen who go, wow, that's that's really tremendous. I remember seeing and testing Rory McIlroy when he was 16, and I said to this kid, I said, you know, all you need to do, Rory, is just keep your body in really good shape so that you can continue to swing this way as you, as you grow older because the, the dynamics of his golf swing were just phenomenal. And today, I mean, he's obviously much bigger as a 22-year-old, I think, than he was at 16, so he's put on a lot of muscle strength, which has been great for his back and, and um, I think for his consistency. But for a, a guy his size to generate as much speed as he does and hit the ball so far is is quite remarkable. So it, he certainly displays those characteristics. Um, and I think if you'd have looked, if you'd have had a chance to look at Tiger Woods in his uh, youth, I think he would have been sensational. Before he started making all of these swing changes with the different coaches, uh, I think that he he was just. Uh, almost in a world of his own in terms of, of his um, ability to generate speed and still have great control. Yeah, and interestingly, even with those changes, he still managed to be able to do that really quite effectively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a remarkable athlete to be able to do that. Oh, exactly, to make all those changes. It's unfortunate that his body's not holding up too well, but that's another story. So how about female golfers? Um, best swings that I've seen? Yeah. I think Yanni Singh. Uh, I got the chance to measure her, and I thought her swing was incredible, actually. So, um, and, and I haven't measured as many LPGA or LET players whose swings I would have said, oh, yeah, that's, that's really, really good. Um, and I don't really understand why that's the case. There's, there's no reason for them not to have technically good swings. Now, they might not move the club and their bodies as fast as males because there's just differences in, in male and female power-producing capabilities in, in their muscles. But um, I, I have to say that the women aren't as technically as proficient as the men uh, that I've had a chance to work with anyway. So in your opinion, there's no real reason why they shouldn't be other than perhaps you know exposure to information all that sort of thing but as far as uh physical makeup what what a, what a player brings to the table with you know joints and muscles and things like that they have every every bit of chances to be able to swing the club similarly to what the guys do just not as powerfully yes and and i had the chance to work with this young girl from california her name is casey Cathray. And she, in 2013, uh, I think 17, was the low amateur at the U.S. Women's Open. And she, I worked with her since she was eight, and we developed a swing that I would describe more like a man's swing than a, a woman's swing. And that's, that's not being very descriptive, I know, but um, if, if you bear with me. Anyway, this girl, she's quite short, I think maybe... Um, five foot four mm-hmm. but club head speeds around 105 uh, which is pretty darn good for a, a girl and and uh, at 18 I was thinking oh, she could really um, uh, make a mark on the LPGA so if, if we just put that that number in perspective Rob so 105 is 
105 miles per hour with a driver. Yes. And if we put that in perspective, say, against um, LPGA players, so female players on the women's professional tour in the US, what would their average be? Their average is 94, and there are only about 10 players whose clubhead speeds uh, are, are over 100 miles an hour. Okay, so we're talking that um, Casey's clubhead speed is quite significant, and the fact that she's only five foot four. Yeah, so she would be equivalent to a Rory McIlroy in the men's game in terms of speed. So how, much of, how much of that is natural? Now, what I mean by natural is men are stronger, but there's also the influence of reflex movement. So, you know, in a, in a line of sprinters, they might all have reasonably good form, but one might be a standout because he can move his limbs faster in the same way than what another person can. So how much of this is 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 innate? Well, I mean, definitely some of it is. So uh, we're given a, a, a set of genes that you know, dictate primarily what type of muscle fibers we have. But we can get migration of, of different muscle fiber types so that we can move towards the power end of the spectrum just as you could move towards the endurance end of the spectrum. And what we did with Casey was we set a, about a, an eight-year training program for her designed ultimately to move her towards the power end of the spectrum so that when she had gone through puberty and um, we had her very stable, that we could actually then allow her to um, safely do exercises that were really um, about speed in the gym and then speed and power in the gym. But also then part of, of her training over the years was to actually get her to swing fast and learn how to swing fast as well. So be comfortable swinging at 100 miles an hour or 105 miles an hour, whereas a lot of women, I think, they just say, oh, yes, it's, we'll keep it in play, we'll get it in the fairway, and it's, it's a different strategy to the game as opposed to the men who really like to, to hit the ball hard. Mm. So, But going back to your original question, some of it's innate, but... but Everyone has the ability to adapt their bodies somewhat to training, through training. So if, if you're a, a elite level shot putter, then you are probably given a, you know, a set of genes that had, you have tremendous power or a, a weightlifter, Olympic weightlifter. You've got a lot of power there. But the training helps to magnify the effect. And so with golf, it's very much a power sport in some parts of the game. And so as uh, as I've been trying to say for many, many years, we need to train specifically for golf in order to um, maximize our power-producing uh, capacity. Because you, you might be familiar with some of Mark Brody's work um, and yes, yes. Basically, the the um, the old adage of uh, drive for show and putt for dough is is not quite there. We need to be long and preferably straight. But even if we're not that straight, it doesn't matter with our driving, and because that gives us an advantage when playing golf. That's tremendous. Now we've talked a bit about the biomechanics and 3D biomechanics, but if we just describe how does how does it work? 
what does it look like in the field and how do you go about using it? So I use it in a few different ways. So let's say I was lucky enough, as Chris Como did, to have Tiger Woods come to me and say, look, I want to work on my biomechanics. And I would use it with a tour player in saying, all right, we need to find out for you what are your best swing mechanics. So we measure and go, okay, when you're playing your best, when you're hitting the ball the best, this is what it looks like for you. And rather than saying, oh, we need to change this, we need to change that, I'll say, this is your gold standard. We're always going to move you back towards that because you've got a lot of training and training history with that technique. Changing it is not likely to give you a better result. Even if it's not perfect, Peter, we'd say, it's still, this is, this is your, your standard. There might be little things that you would tweak. With a developing player, I'd really focus on technical excellence. So, what are the correct movements? What's the right sequence? How do I connect my arms to my body properly? How do I get good lag and all of those sorts of characteristics? So you would teach that to them and use biofeedback training and feedback to, to uh, develop that. And, and the detail there is very important. For handicapped golfers or average golfers, I would use the system completely differently and I would focus much more on the training aspect. So I really like this analogy that um, uh, a former uh, Australian coach, Mark Holland, gave me. I said, this was back in 2000 when we first worked together. He said, Rob, I'm sure you just see everyone swing by numbers. You look at your computer there, and it's a whole series of numbers. And I said, yeah, well, that's partly true. He said, when I look at someone's swing, I might look at it on video and I'll draw some lines and I'll, I'll get these qualitative views of it. But for that golfer there, his swing or her swing is all about what she feels. Mm. And so my emphasis as a coach, this is Mark speaking, is to try to understand what they need to feel in order to produce the mechanics that you want. And so... One of the real nice features of these 3D systems that are available on the market is that you can do real-time audio feedback. So when you move to the correct position or the correct orientation, whatever it might be, an audio tone can tell you that you're in the right position. And alternatively, if it doesn't be, then you're not in the right position. So you know as you're creating the movement, if you do it correctly or not, and then you can build a feel for the movement. So for average golfers, I really focus on getting them to feel what it's like to do something correctly, and that really makes a big difference to the the, um, process of learning and really how rapidly they can begin assimilating the changes that the coach might want. Exactly, because they might be listening for a tone, but what they're doing is they're actually feeling the movement they're creating to to make that tone happen. So, oh, that's perfect. That's like instantaneous feedback. Yeah, and it, and it works really well at all levels, but I particularly focus not on the analysis piece for the average players, but on that feedback training and, and getting them to spend time understanding what their what it feels like in their body when they do it correctly, because... You would know only too well, you know, when you make a change, it feels horrible. Mm. And you say, how can that possibly be right? And the 
the affirmation comes when the beep comes on or the tone is heard to say, oh, yep, that is right. That is what Peter wants for me. Yeah, usually the uh, there's an instant reframe rather than feeling horrible. It feels, no, it feels different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Recognize yeah. the difference and work with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if you don't feel a difference, then maybe you're not doing anything different. Correct. Yeah, oh, that's good. And so... Your clients, uh, we actually haven't mentioned yet where you're based. So you're based at uh, Doral in Florida? Yes, and I've been doing some work up in uh, Orlando and Hilton Head recently as well, but mostly in Doral. And your client base is, from the conversation we've had so far, I'm assuming it's right across the board. Uh, Correct. Uh, I would say that predominantly it's the junior and developing golfers, so the 14 to 20-year-olds, maybe 25-year-olds, who really have time and motivation to become good at golf. But then there's another cohort of people who are avid golfers who really want to get good and, and are prepared to invest time in their technique and probably training and practicing and those sorts of things too. So I see quite a number of those people as well. I would say I more often than not, I see clients regularly rather than just a one-off, oh, I'll go and do that 3D session because that's not very valuable for me or for them, just having your swing analyzed and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's great. You, you need to, to, if you're going to invest in in becoming a better golfer then it means multiple times it's not it'd be just like if someone came for one lesson with you peter you would say what chance have you got in impacting their uh, golfing expertise yeah and that's a great point because uh we're recording this in uh, january so it's summertime in australia it's also holiday time in Australia, and uh, I'll have clients that I might see during that period, and then through the year they're busy with work or they're travelling or whatever, and I don't see them. And oftentimes when they come back, their, their swing has, has regressed, maybe not to the point that it was originally, but very close to it because they're just they're defaulting back to what they've learnt. In other words, the, the changes haven't been, the improvements haven't been cemented with sufficient... Um, practice or sufficient supervision to actually have them become part of what they do. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really true. And, and it's, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we have is, I'll, I'll throw myself in the same bin as you here as a coach, Peter, is to motivate people sufficiently to ensure that they go and do the, the practice that we know that will make a difference for them. So that's part of our role is to give them sufficient motivation, not just to give them the information, maybe a few drills, but also how often they need to practice and then excite them about getting getting out there and practicing and taking the, the, those new ideas and thoughts uh, to practice and then on the golf course, those sorts of things, because it's a difficult journey. Yeah, Absolutely. And so people who are US-based listening to this, how do they get in touch with you? I would say the easiest way is to contact me uh, via email, and my email is r.neil 
That's N-E-A-L at golfbiodynamics.com. You can go to the website as well, www.golfbiodynamics.com, and uh, you can get my contact details there. Or um, if you were to phone the Jim McLean Golf School at Doral and ask for me, then they would put me in contact with you. So that, that would be the two best ways, I would think. And, of course, what I'll do is post the... Uh, those contact details in the notes that I'm putting with this podcast as well. So listeners will be able to look at that and go directly to you. Rob, it's been fantastic to chat with you. Um, just a, a little admission for the listeners. This is actually our second take because of um, uh, my malfunctions with the technology to start with. But the, the chat is a little different. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Peter. And like anything, when you do it the second time, you, you you might do it a little better, you might do it a little differently, but it's always nice to get a chance to speak with you. Exactly. Thank you.